Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're both together in the studio today, which Great is- Great to see you, Howie. It is rare for us to do this, and it's sort of fun <laughs> to do it. It's a special it's good episode. To see, to see you live. And this week, we're going to talk to each other about a host of different topics. We don't have a guest. That's why we decided to do it in the studio today. And, you know, we both knew Sid Wolf. I think you knew of him better than I did, um, but I think you wanted to speak to just what this man represented and what he accomplished in a life well lived. Yeah, I just want to take a moment to give a tribute to Sid Wolf. People listening may have heard that Sid Wolf passed away at age 86 recently of a brain tumor. Who the heck was Sid Wolf? Well, Sid Wolf was a doctor who turned into a consumer activist who really spent his life surfacing issues that, in my view, needed to be discussed, where he was concerned about issues around drug safety. I mean, he was one of the early ones that really weighed in about Vioxx as, as that uh, controversy came up. And, and really, he was one that was trying to help ensure that the public's interest was being served by by all the forces around us that may sometimes be pushing either a little too fast or overlooking some things. Yeah. And and there are people who felt that Sid was a zealot, but honestly, we needed a voice that was loud and clear that would stand up to the powerful and, and raise uncomfortable questions. Yeah, I, I was fortunate to bring him here probably 18 years ago to meet with my students, and I was very impressed with him. And, and I think the term zealot can be used in a positive or a negative way. I don't think zealotry is always bad. I think zealotry is bad in people that have a lot of power. Uh, but when somebody believes in something, to, to have zeal is not a bad thing. And he had zeal. He was very committed to this cause that we needed more equitable safe access to pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And, you know, on odd times, I, you know, I would get a call from Sid. Always, they were welcome calls. He always raised important issues, sometimes trying to utz me to do something that, uh, you know, maybe I hadn't realized, you know, that there was an issue to be faced. And yeah, I mean, he had both, you know, people who admired him and detractors. I fall into the admiration side. You know, I really thought that here was a guy who really sought to do the right thing. And again, you know, was he on the right side on all issues? Hard to tell. But that, you know, he made a big contribution to American healthcare. You know, I, I, I share that sentiment. I didn't know him as well as you, but having had him here, he was, as I would say, a mensch, which yeah, was, was mensch. the best thing to Definitely. say. So, so Howie, what else do yeah. you want to go to today? Yeah, so we talked about covid uh, last week, last episode briefly, but there is some recent news on COVID. And I just wanted to get your take on some of this. One of it is, and I almost hesitate to mention it because it seems political and it shouldn't be, but the Surgeon General of Florida, uh, Ladapo, Dr. Ladapo, a Harvard-trained physician, a a very, not just well-educated, but very successful physician before he went into sort of the public domain, he wants to halt the use of mRNA vaccines in Florida. He's made a call for it, predicated on the fact that he believes that the DNA fragments that are found in the vials are potentially going to alter your genome. You know, one of our friends and colleagues uh, has a nice video online of saying this is absolute bunk. He goes through exactly why it's bunk. Ashish Jha more simply said, this is just pseudoscience. Like, I can't believe he's saying this. But I was curious if you had seen this and what you think about that. And how do we, how do we move forward at this point? Yeah, it can be quite confusing when a public figure comes out and says something so authoritatively and, and definitively in an area where the science hasn't really emerged. And I, it can just it's bound to confuse folks. Look, I think it's true that these 
vaccines saved millions of lives. I also think it's true that that these vaccines were, you know, may have caused harm in some people. Yeah. We're learning about that. But but what he's talking about is actually something very different. And it doesn't have a, a scientific basis at this point. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate because, you know, it's not being driven by how the evidence is going. And it's really, it really feels more political. I was interested, though, Howie, in the last episode, you said you were seeking the Novavax. Yeah. And what made you make that choice? So, I, you know, I've had a number of vaccines in my life. I've had flu vaccines. I've obviously had all the childhood vaccines. I had the Shingrix vaccine, one dose, not both. Um, and I have very high reactogenicity side effects from Shingrix and then from all the mRNA vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna. Not, not uh, so much that I wouldn't get vaccinated, but it was causing me to have a headache for like 48 hours and the usual fatigue that people experience. And I started doing some reading and a few people that I really respect on Twitter said, the evidence is Novavax is at least as effective and maybe, not necessarily, but maybe less reactogenic. People may have a lower side effect profile. So I figured I'll take advantage of the placebo effect even. Like even if I think it has less reactogenicity, why not try it? And Lo and behold, it's the first time that I've taken one of the um, one of the uh, COVID vaccines where I didn't have chills at night. I had no measurable fever, very mild headache the next day that went away. And so I'm happy I took it. I believe in the science. I think one of the points you made when we're talking about Ladapo is even the harm that we know about with the COVID vaccines right now is vastly dwarfed by the benefit from it. And, and I take that very seriously. I think when I think about my risk benefit profile for taking either of those vaccines, it vastly favors getting vaccinated. Yeah. And I, I mean, my concern is, and let's just, you know, for folks listening, what you just described is an anecdote. I mean, they, there isn't a published article that makes clear that the, the Novavax has a lower there, there is one published article. I'd have to go find it. One published article that says the reactogenicity may be lower. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Anyway, it's not clear. But I'm, my concern is, as we look across the country, there's still a, a very few people who have been vaccinated. Not, for so I'll, I looked up COVID. the numbers for us. 19% are now vaccinated and only 37% of those over 75. Yeah, yeah. So th this is a major concern of mine, which is that you know people ought to get those at risk ought to be vaccinated. And, I agree. You know, they're real, basically leaving themselves unprotected. And and I think that that's unfortunate. Yeah, I think, I think the other problem is that early in the pandemic, we were telling people who were recently infected, like two months ago, you should get vaccinated. And that may or may not have been correct. I don't know enough to say that either way for sure. But the one thing we know right now is that immunity wanes, whether it's from prior infection or from prior vaccination. And so at this point in the pandemic, there is a vast number of people over 75 who are very much vulnerable to this new variant. And vaccination clearly has a favorable risk benefit profile for them. Yeah. And Eric Topol put out, I thought, a really nice state of the pandemic piece recently. And, you know, he was sort of describing other people's work and, and really, I think, putting into bright relief, the idea that we are in the midst of the yeah. pandemic again. And uh, there was something he quoted that says, as of December 30th, there were 1.6 million new infections per day. We talked about this last week. So many people around us are infected. And and unlike the experience, even in recent months, it seems like this variant and this wave is causing a lot more distress, people to get a lot sicker, hospitalizations to increase in ways that we haven't seen for a while. So, you know, another reason why people should be protected and 
for, you know, it may be that we're, you know, we're in a bad direction right now with regard yeah. to it. Yeah. Did you happen to see, there's a study that came out from a group in France who looked at six countries, including the United States, and they did a analysis of the marginal effect of hydroxychloroquine. And they have convinced themselves, maybe not everybody at this point, that there was an excess number of deaths just in those six countries of 17,000 associated with hydroxychloroquine use, suggesting that the side effects of hydroxychloroquine, perhaps the cardiac ones, might actually be much worse than we thought in this large population. Yeah, I always find those studies to be challenging. I mean, in a place where people are more likely to take hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, maybe other behaviors also track with that. That's and, right. You know, it's, I think what we can say for sure is that there never emerged any strong evidence that this was that beneficial, helped. same with ivernectin. And yet, yeah. how many people do we have in this country that were not willing to take vaccines, but were willing to take these other medications, which by the way, are not harmless. Right. But, so whether or not that study's true, yeah. what is true is that these aren't harmless medications. And yet there was never really any evidence that they could provide benefit. I couldn't agree more. And how is that, Howie? I mean, that whereas like so much of the population can grab hold on to misinformation about a drug and be willing to expose themselves to the risks of that drug. Meanwhile, we have tons of evidence about highly effective strategies and people were reluctant to embrace it. I mean, we, we live in a time right now like no other in my lifetime where your tribe uh, who you affiliate with, what political party you affiliate with, what TV shows you watch, what radio shows, what feed you have on social media is going to be far more predictive of your logic uh, than yeah, and, anything and else. I've been really influenced by these articles I've been seeing talking about the rabbit holes with regard to social media, that you get on TikTok and it actually creates a, a personal path that starts to amplify the messages that you're getting that can be getting bizarre, more bizarre, more bizarre, sort of incrementally pulling you into a no ecosystem where you think the whole world believes X, no. Y, or Z. No, I mean, there are times where I will try to follow up on a conspiracy theory. And, you know, there's a certain point where you're like, this is starting to sound plausible. Let me leave this you know, echo chamber right yeah, yeah. and 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 go find a completely different source because that may pull me back and it usually does but it's worrisome yeah on the same note harlan of like how do we look at studies you and i talked about the fact that the fda has flagged three potential side effects associated with glp1s and those three side effects just for our listeners and by the way when we say flagged there's the, the beginning of a signal, meaning that they've just seen reports. It may absolutely not be true. The three are suicidal ideation, aspiration during surgery, and alopecia, which is unusual hair loss. And by the way, the aspiration during surgery at least sounds physiologically plausible because we know that these patients have sort of a paralysis of their stomach, which can lead to reflux of stomach contents during surgery. The others are harder to explain, but we don't know enough about the GLP-1s. These are the glucagon-like peptide agonists, and we don't know enough about them. We do know they're highly effective with weight loss, highly effective for diabetes. Uh, but, but I bring this up because I asked you a question about a study in Nature that within days of the FDA report, reported on a study that they had started well before that, that said suicidal ideation is actually reduced with GLP-1 use. And I'm personally confused about it because I don't know if I should believe this for the same reasons why you said to me, 
the hydroxychloroquine study, you're not sure. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. So let's just get back to the to the major headline first, which is the FDA flagged this, as you said, but it doesn't mean they found it. Sure. It means that they're looking into it. So, But this will still unsettle people, particularly people who are taking these medications yeah. or people who are considering them. And so there's going to be a lot of interest in this. We've said, you know, the the trials are studying tens of thousands of people, but as millions of people start to take a medication, side effects can emerge that aren't detected expect, in the right? early part of evaluation. And one strategy people are taking is to use some of these large data sets. In the case of the study that you mentioned, they're using a platform called Trinetics Analytics Platform. What this does is this company goes into health systems and says, We'd like to be able to use your data to commercialize it for other purposes, whether it's selling to pharma or to use it for, for a wide variety of commercial purposes. And in, a, in exchange, we can help you to be able to delve into your own data and get insights. And, and so they make some sort of contract. By the way, this is I brought this up to you before. If I want to use the Yale data for research, i got to go through all these hoops. These, these business contracts basically can go and make a business contract with the healthcare system and get access to all of and, their data. And what about me? Like I've been a patient at Yale Newman Hospital many, many, many times. Do they have access to my data? If, if There are many business associates who have access to your data through agreements with Yale New Haven Hospital. I don't think Yale New Haven has an agreement with Trinetics. Okay, but, but, but they could. They could. Mm. They could, and they, they often do. So then they have this platform and one of the issues is that they can't tell you where the data is from. That is when they right. publish things about it in order to maintain the agreement that they have. They don't really quite tell you. They say these come from 100 million patients from 59 healthcare organizations across the 50 United States, diverse geographic regions, age, ethnicity, and so forth. But they don't tell you who these hospitals right. are. It's a mystery data set in that way. And then they go on to say that you know the data has been pre-processed. They've gone on and done things to it so that it can be analyzed, but some of this is really, you're not clear exactly what they did do. And then what they did was they took a, a large number of these people who had been taking these medications compared to people who hadn't. They did a, you know some usual statistical techniques to try to determine who, who had the outcome and whether there was additional risk. I don't know, Howie. I mean, I think we got to see whether this validates in other, in other data sets, but I guess... The thing I can say is in this study that there wasn't a signal of harm and if anything, right. safety. And in my own experience with patients, I think this thing treats depression. I mean, people who are facing obesity, once they can finally in their life get get control of that obesity and lose weight, actually their mood often will elevate. Right. But I mean, but there's several layers to that, right? So the one question is, is there a central mechanism that lifts your mood or is it that immediately you see yourself losing weight, which gives you hope. Yeah. And hope does lift your mood. So I know it may not seem like a big difference to other people, but the reason why it matters to me is you could simultaneously have a central mechanism that could lead to suicidal ideation, as we see with antidepressants, and simultaneously have your mood lifted because your weight is going down, and both things can interact. Well, and for the patient, it may not matter what the mechanism is, but I think your point is a good one. Lots of people are thinking about these drugs as having the potential to rewire your... Uh, this sounds wild, yeah, but, but you know, know. there's some brain rewiring yeah. that's going on because it's affecting your satiety centers, and we've heard lots about maybe addiction yeah. goes down. I mean, there, there are things that are happening, I think, beyond what we really understand, and there is this relationship between what's going on in the brain and what's going on, you know, in, in the stomach and in the rest of the body. And, so, and just for our listeners, a lot of things can rewire our brain, right? Exercise can rewire yeah, our brain. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's it's not implausible that this could be having effects that, you know, could be untoward that relate to behaviors. We definitely need to monitor for it. I just don't think we're in any place now to say that's actually is what's happening. Yeah, no, no, no. I really appreciate you talking about that because to me, we have one study that's saying a very bold thing and then you have the FDA issuing a statement which is almost the output. But it was opposite. a reassuring study that came out. Yes. No question about it. It certainly doesn't make the case worse. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about today was, you know, it turns out that, that Elevance, uh, which is a payer, is suing the federal government about the way that they rank health plans yeah. because it has tremendous financial implications. And then they're talking about esoteric statistical methodology yeah. in this. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What's your take on that? So I, you know, I brought this up to you and I said, like, I want your take on it because when I read it, what, what's funny to me is like, here you have this very, very well capitalized, rich company in the health insurance space. Elevance, for those of our listeners who may not know, is the former Anthem. It's the former Blue Cross Blue Shield of New York and California, a bunch of places. And now it's called Elevance. And they have tremendous wherewithal to sue the federal government when rules don't go their way. And so there's this thing called the Tukey deletion, which allows them to modify a data set to make it what Medicare thinks is a more normalized data set. And I think it goes against the profitability of Elevance. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the methodology that they employed. So this Tukey is from this guy, John Tukey, who was it. a famous mathematician at Bell Labs and, and at Princeton. And for those of you who are aficionados of math, I mean, this guy was responsible for fast Fourier transform, oh, box wow. plots, the Tukey range test, the, you know, there's a whole Tukey correction for statistical uh, significance. I mean, he's done a lot of stuff. And, I mean, this guy's one of the most esteemed mathematicians that we've had. He died in 2000 at age 85 after making immense contributions. But one of the things he did was he came up with this way of, of identifying and excluding an outlier within a data set so that it wouldn't have untoward influence on the result. And CMS thought, you know, in order to make sure that our findings are stable year to year, we don't want one outlier, one that's really yeah. very different than the others to be sort of influencing where our thresholds are for being able to say there is reward or penalty. Right. And so they thought, you know, this seems sensible to do. Yeah. I guess Elevance's uh, methodologist looked at it and said, because you did it that way, that put us. us in the penalty zone yeah. or put us in a disadvantage, yeah. and we want you to get rid of it. This is the kind of thing where you shouldn't be based on what the results are. People should be looking at it a priori and trying to decide what the best approach is. It's just interesting that you know this is now being brought into public policy. It is fascinating. I mean, it's just not surprising in our capitalist economy that this is how it functions. It can't get away from that. I don't know if you want to just hit on one more substantive area, which is this article that came out in JAMA Pediatrics Oh, yeah, this week. no, definitely, yeah. J just to say that it was just questioning the diagnostic accuracy of large language models yeah. in pediatric case studies. And I, I thought this was interesting because we've seen so many studies come out to say like these new AI, artificial intelligence models, can pass the boards, they can solve difficult cases. There was a recent study that was came out and said that differential diagnosis can be done well out of Google Research and Google DeepMind. There was... Another one that came out that was saying that in there was an article in New England Journal of Medicine, Artificial Intelligence. It said it can solve a lot of yeah. complex cases that might appear in the New England Journal too. And yet this one said that it was uh, not doing a very good job for pediatric cases. I, I'll just say my quick take on this is 
we're in the first half of the first inning of this thing. So these things are continuing to get better and evolve over time. It's sort of like taking a snapshot today is is wholly inadequate. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, the methodology of these studies are slightly different. You know, what, what I do know is that when you put this head-to-head with a person in a room and you ask them, what does this do? The, the, these large language models do pretty well. Yeah. And when you do it as an additive clinical decision-making support. Assistive, yeah. Assistive, it yeah. helps people, yeah. right? So, you know, I've been bringing this up all the time. It's like the pilots in, in the cockpit. I mean, I think that the, these things can be helpful, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not ready to, to declare yeah. a verdict based on one study. And I'm becoming more convinced that this is going to have one of its biggest impacts on medical education because I think that if we can get confident in how people can access this information, we could spend a little less time fixated on some of the memorization parts of medical education and really stick to um, the the way to think, the way to find information rather than exactly what you have to have memorized in order to pass a board's exam. Well, and I think this will raise the question, what does competency represent right. in medicine anymore? Is it sitting for an every 10-year test where you had to you know, be prepared to have memorized the answers? Or are we going to evolve to a different era? Open book, open, open chat GPT. Why not? If I can answer the question in 30 seconds by looking it up, is that any worse than what real life is like? Yeah. So I think this will undergo a dramatic dramatic change. Okay, so so here's you know, here's an interesting thing that I feel like I've been following almost my whole career because when I was working in the Senate during the Bush administration it was the first time that President Bush, I believe, or maybe it was Congress, but somebody passed law or executive order that said states can reimport from Canada as long as the FDA says it's okay and safe. And so for the next 20 years, the FDA did not say it was okay or safe, but people have continued to sort of lobby or, or um, apply to the FDA in order to be allowed to reimport drugs from Canada. Now, why is that important? Canadian drugs are a fraction of the price of the same identical American drugs, same identical drugs at a fraction of the price. And people that live on the border can legally cross the border. If you live in Vermont, you can legally cross the border, buy your drugs there, come back to the United States, and not only have paid for your trip, but saves a lot of money on top of that, which is just an unfortunate indictment of the U.S. healthcare system. The uh, Florida uh, Department of Health applied to the FDA. Uh, they came up with a plan for how they want to do this. And basically for their Medicaid programs, their prisons, and their state-run clinics, they want to import drugs from Canada. And for the first time, the FDA has given an approval for that. It may not be as easy as it sounds because you still need the compliance of Canada, the drug manufacturers, and Florida has to come up with a specific plan that the FDA would then approve. But we're pretty far the way there. And so it's interesting that we're watching this go down the street right now and see whether it, uh, you know, eventually is able to take off. Well, I think this is a really important event because, first of all, Florida says it'll save taxpayers about $150 million a year just by simply importing from Canada as opposed to buying. And just for the subpopulation. And just for the subpopulation. So I I wanted to ask you, why aren't all the states applying for this? Yeah. So first of all, there's like, dozens of applications out there for it. Florida, I think, is just the one that did the best job of figuring out how to apply. Um, But I think if we had all states doing it all at once, it would be a no-brainer for Canada to immediately put up a wall and say, we can't do this. We're a country of 40 million people. 
Florida alone is a, is a state of 21 million people. It's almost impossible to service them without obtaining more drugs from drug companies, and those drug companies simply won't sell us that many drugs, and we don't want a shortage for our own people. So help me understand this. I mean, in one article I read, it said that, for example, in the UK, they pay about, I don't know, $300 per capita for, for meds. In the US, our use of medicines is not so different, and we pay about you know $1,100 about right. per yep. capita for medicines. I mean, how how is it that we end up paying so much more for medications? And we only, we have very few areas where we allow the government to use its heft to its purchase purchasing drugs. power. Huh? And really, the VA is one example, and there's a few other limited examples, but they certainly don't have the heft of Medicare, which we're going to start to see with the Inflation Reduction Act, maybe. And they don't have the heft of a state of Florida, for instance, to try to do this all at once. And And quite frankly, we've supported an industry because we've been afraid to over-regulate it and impair innovation. And it remains to be seen how much impairment of innovation might occur if we were to uh, ratchet down prices. And we're going to start to see that with the Inflation Reduction Well, well here's a question for you. Do you think that the drug companies are losing money at the price point that they have in Canada? No, I don't think so. I think they actually are at least capable of making marginal cost uh, of the drugs. So I'm just saying, if there is a profit that's being made in the other countries at the price points that they've had, then we're we're really subsidizing large profits. A hundred percent. United yeah. States is, uh, you know, my my former student, who you know, I won't say his name here, but my former student, his paper in 1998 in my class was the free rider problem of Canada on the United States, and to this day, not just Canada, though. right, right. But, right. but to this day, I believe that's true, that a lot of these countries free ride on our R&D. And so do you have a prediction for 2024 with regard to this importation issue? So, I mean, I have predictions on both these issues. I think the importation won't happen. I think it'll be stalled because I think it's going to take a lot of regulatory effort. The FDA is going to have to approve. Remember, they have to relabel every box when it comes back over. Lots of things have to happen. I think it'll get stalled. I think the drug companies will tell Canada, we're not giving you an extra dose. We know what you need. You're not getting it. And they're going to be afraid to give anything to Florida. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it probably won't happen. The thing I worry most about this year is is whether the Supreme Court or any of the courts rule against the Inflation Reduction Act, because I happen to think that is a great start. I think we really do need to negotiate on the margin. All these drugs will have made billions of dollars before we start to ratchet down the prices on them. I think that's an appropriate action. Are, are they considering cases that are specifically about the drugs, or do you say, are they seeing larger scale case or cases in other areas, but that will knock down the Inflation Reduction Act so that the drugs will be a casualty of that. Yeah, they're at, they're attacking the ability. I think it's called the takings clause. Uh, they're attacking the ability of the federal government to actually lay claim to a price. Uh, so it is about the price fixing. Yeah, it's about the, the price fixing. Yeah. That. Yeah. And, and it's by several different mechanisms and several different lawsuits. They'll eventually, I think, get consolidated. Uh, we should probably get a health lawyer who deals with this. Maybe Nicholas Bagley or someone else will get on at some point to just talk, or Aaron Kesselheim, to talk more about the legal aspect of it. But there's this is going to be fought in the courts first at the federal court level and then working its way up through the appellate and Supreme Court. Does this include the insulin pricing, the cap on insulin? So I don't think there's a lawsuit about that. I think partly because the drug companies sort of uh, conceded on a lot of that even before the the uh, executive order took effect. I see. Great. 
Harry, take us home. You have one like final thing. Yeah. I think. So you started with Sid Wolf, and um, you know, I I was very young when I was in my seven year medical program, and I had a professor named June Jackson Christmas. You don't forget a name like that. Uh, she was a behavioral health psychiatrist. Taught us. She was quite fine, and I knew she was a senior psychiatrist. I didn't know a lot about her, and I'm sort of ashamed now all these years later because she died on New Year's Eve, and I got to read about her, and it was so touching to learn about her. I just want to tell our listeners a few things about her because she was a woman well ahead of her time. She, in, in, uh, when she was 14 years old in Cambridge, Massachusetts, she staged a sit-down at a roller skating rink that was segregated. I mean, think about that. 14 years old in like 1938, I'm guessing, wow. or 39, she did that. And it never stopped. Her activism never stopped. Her commitment to equity, her, her accomplishments only grew from there. She became the head of the New York City Department of Mental Health and Retardation Services. That's what they called it under Mayor Lindsay Beam and Koch. I'm a New Yorker, so I know all three of those names because that's in my lifetime. She went to uh, Vassar College. She was, I think, the third black woman to graduate from Vassar. She went to BU Medical School and eventually became a psychiatrist. She was the first black woman to serve as the head of the American Public Health Association. I just didn't know how extraordinary she was at those times. I want to give you two quick quotes that just touched me. Uh, One of them is a quote apparently uh, that is um, uh, part of uh, lore And that is each one teach one, which is rooted in American slavery when black people were denied an education and literacy was conveyed from one person to another, that this is the way you had to change the world. And the other was a quote that she gave really in preparation for this obituary, because I think it was only seven years ago. She said, it seems to me that I've often been in places where if you wanted to make life better for yourself, you had to work to make life better for everybody else. Mm. And I just was so touched by that. I... That is one of the most well-lived lives. And I'm, again, embarrassed that I didn't know enough about her in her lifetime. I hope more of our listeners will go back and read the New York Times obituary and learn more about June Jackson Christmas. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Howie. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback, you can still email us at health.veritas at yale.edu, or you can still find us on various social media, LinkedIn, Threads, and Twitter or X. Yeah, we're still calling it Twitter. At H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, that's H-M-K-E-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Aside from Twitter and a podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs or check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced for the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stump. And to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, terrific, terrific folks. We're lucky to be working with them. Yeah, and we got them for another year, at least, unless they they get scared off by us. So they're with us when they they be seniors next year. The students, and I hope Miranda's with us longer. Talk to you soon. Miranda's been with us forever. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Ron. It was a lot of fun. Talk to you soon.